Welcome to this week's edition of Odds and Ends. Before we get to the business of collecting a few different stories from each nook and cranny around Austin, I wanted to plug the Texans fundraising drive, TSM's Support Student Voices. Support Student Voices is a campaign where the Texan, as well as every other group in TSM, goes out to find donations to help fund the things that we do here every day. The equipment that I'm using right now to record this podcast, the microphone, the microphone stand, the the Zoom H6 that I'm recording on, and the headphones were all bought with money raised through things just like support student voices. SSV allows the Texan to pay for things like trips to conferences or to sports teams so that we can have the best coverage and the most up-to-date information as we can on how to report on the campus around us. It pays for equipment like the ones that I'm using, whether it be for more equipment so that we can be more agile and make more different kinds of podcasts. Uh, and help to expand our audience, or it's getting a new camera or a new lens that's been broken in photo, or buying a better tripod or buying a better shotgun mic for the video team. It's all about putting money directly towards the people that use it. Um, I know I personally have benefited from the equipment and the money that we've gotten from this because not only am I paid as part of my participation at the Texan, but you know I get to use this equipment day in and day out. It's a great opportunity for everybody in the UT community to donate and help fund one of the best things about UT. For me, my experience at the Texan has been amazing. You know, I've met amazing people, whether that be people I've interviewed and worked with or the people right here in the basement. Uh, I've learned from them and I've gotten a lot out of it. And even though I'm not going to be a journalist one day, I know that I'm all the better for having worked at the Texan. So please consider donating at supportstudentvoices.org. Just note that you're uh, donating to the Daily Texan and uh, maybe note that you heard about it from a podcast. But enough about that. We're going to go ahead and get into the podcast. This is Odds and Ends. As you learned last week, Odds and Ends is all about collecting little stories, sometimes big stories, from each corner of campus and each corner of Austin. So uh, I'm JT Lindsay. I'm one of the audio editors here. And this week, we've got two stories for you, both about things in our backyards, but one's massive and the other is really small. Let's start big. Clark Dalton, he's a reporter not only for us, but also for the sports department, was really interested in figuring out how Austin's soccer fans get through the day without a team. Austin is the largest metropolitan area without a professional sports team, and soccer fans, especially in Austin, are starved for something to root for. Well, He looked into the development of a new MLS team in North Austin, and here's what he found. Soccer is one of the most popular games across the globe, with its fast pace and spectacular goals. The sport is watched by 3.4 billion people, but it's nowhere to be found on the 40 acres, or even in Austin for that matter. Before the University of Texas added a women's team in 1994, there weren't really any options for soccer fans in Austin. Since then, semi-pro teams like the Aztecs and the Bold were introduced. But despite all the effort, fans were still left unsatisfied. Fans have turned out to support their local teams, but the semi-pro leagues just don't compare to America's top-tier soccer league, Major League Soccer. Now Austin soccer fans are getting what they want, their own MLS team. The MLS plans to further expand by adding three more teams by 2021. 
one of the markets that will be included is Austin, and it's getting super fans like freshman kinesiology major Luis Gomez and journalism professor Christian McDonald excited. I'll be I'll buy season tickets as soon as they're there. I was one of those guys at the at the uh, unveiling, chanting, chanting, "Take our money, take our money." I mean, I know where my seats are going to be, like you know, like or where I want to sit. Um, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, yeah, I'm totally in support of Austin FC. Um, I'm a big fan of soccer, and I'm really excited um, that there's going to be a new team in Austin. Austin is a primetime destination for the league, especially considering it is the largest city in the United States without a professional sports team. Austin has a lot to offer with a vast array of people that worship the game religiously and host a booming tech industry strengthening the city with its profits. These factors paved the way for a successful franchise with a herd of passionate fans. However, as everything does, all of this comes at a cost. The stadium is being constructed in North Austin near the domain for a whopping $225 million. Additionally, the terms of the deal exempt the owner of Austin FC, Michael Precourt, from paying property taxes on the site, leaving taxpayers to bear the expense. That's going to generate about a $21.6 million increase in property taxes for the surrounding area, according to economist Angelou Zangelou. And that property tax hike has the potential to subject Longhorns to a higher cost of living. And as you can imagine, students who live in West Campus aren't thrilled with the prospect. Freshman computer science major Anna Williams is concerned. I understand as a college, like sports are very important in America. However, at the same time, like when I would have to affect people at that extent, at that far, I'd say no, it's really not fair to the students because Yes, I'm West Campus, but there's lots of other students who live in West Campus, not in fact most of them as well. And so to a certain point, like they'd be moving a lot of people farther away from campus, but at what risk and what cost? More citizens are echoing these sentiments, which has led them to take action. More than 29,000 Austinites signed a petition calling for a referendum each time the city wants to issue property tax exemptions to sports and entertainment organizations like Austin FC. This petition, filed by a political action committee called Fair Play Austin, was verified by the city clerk in February, forcing city council to make a decision on the matter. The city council has until August to make an official ruling. But when the long-term effects are taken into consideration, some feel the deal is actually favorable. I, I think if you took a look at the deal that Austin has with um, pre-court, pre-court sports ventures for that stadium, compare it to stadium deals in other places, uh, recent soccer stadium deals, it's not a bad deal. Um, I think it's going to be, I think it'll be a boon. I think it'll be good. I think the city is getting something out of their investment. Uh, I think they have enough. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say I like totally know everything about that deal, but for what I see, you know, they, they put in some um, assurances, you know, that they'll, that they're going to, get some ta- that they're going to get tax or re- revenue in future years that there's a penalty if they leave early you know other things like that that i think there will be a benefit to the community based off of that soccer deal so on one hand the team could be a huge source of revenue but on the other the franchise could exacerbate the already high cost of living in austin the city is at a crossroads regardless of the final settlement it's clear that the construction of a large-scale sports complex will continue to have a huge impact. Austin fans are clamoring for a big-time team, but the city has to determine who's going to foot the bill.
But our final story this week is about something very small, a micro-prairie. Harman Kang and Divya Jagadish decided to look into a micro-prairie right here at UT. They talked to students, they talked to ecological experts throughout Austin, and they were just curious about one question. How can the prairies that we used to have in the past, before all of this development, inform the way that we address environmental crises right now? They got into that and more. When you think of cowboys, what setting pops in your mind? Deserts, cliffs, cacti. But get this, instead of sand, the first settlers in Texas saw lush black soil. Before the mid-19th century, the Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin areas were covered in tall grass prairie grasslands. However, only 1% of the original blackland prairie remains today. To combat this, UT's Campus Environmental Center started the Half Pint Urban Prairie, a plot of land near the Student Services Building dedicated to helping restore the natural ecoregion of Central Texas. We talked to students and experts to understand why the prairies are ecologically important and relevant to students' everyday lives. Mm-hmm. I'm Jack Rouse. I'm a sophomore accounting major, and I'm the Half Pint Prairie co-lead. I'm Mark DeGraff. I'm a freshman environmental science major, and I am the other Half Pint co-lead. Jack and Mark got involved with the urban prairie because of the impact it would have on the campus and the environment. Because I feel like they're, they're an important part of, of the history of like this area because they were used extensively in agriculture and then in other things, but because of their extensive use, they're almost entirely gone, less than 1% remains. So it's almost like this lost, this lost ecosystem that no one really cares about and a lot of people have forgotten about. So I guess I'm just interested in learning more about it and then teaching other people about it. Uh, I don't think I had as noble goals as Mark when I started. <laughs> I thought it was a really interesting opportunity to like make a physical mark on campus that would last. And I think I was more interested in it as like for the challenge and the opportunity. But I think as I've learned more about it, I've it's definitely come to mean more to me in terms of like being able to be active on campus and making use of the resources you have that like and empowering students to create change in their own community and then also like Mark said like there's very strong ecological reasons and like sustainable landscaping practices reasons and like Texas cultural and history reasons that we should preserve the prairie as well. So I think in its broadest sense conservation is essentially treating, maintaining, like interacting with an ecosystem in a way so that it'll be here essentially forever so that it won't disappear after a few years. <clears throat> and then for the pocket prairie, what we're doing is one of the things we've talked about is creating a sort of seed bank for a lot of the prairie plants because they didn't really have anywhere left to grow in the wild. So if we're able to grow some really uncommon blackland prairie plants in the pocket prairie right there, that could be one of the last places they're able to grow outside of a flower plot or outside of a garden. Is that something really cool we could do just to preserve the prairie? And then also, like I've said a lot, it's about raising awareness as well. That's one of the reasons we like the location right next to the SSB on Dean Keaton. It's something that people can look at and be interested in, and hopefully it could inspire a few people that walk by to to restore blackland prairies and other places as well. I think there's an interesting connotation to the word conservation that, like, I don't know, a lot of people think of it as, like, setting something aside and then leaving it leaving it there untouched but i think there's a certain like degree of care that has to happen as well with something like a prairie it is like an ever-changing community like because of like the way ecological succession works is if 
something doesn't upset the prairie, it stops being a prairie, is that it turns into a savanna and then eventually a forest. And so, like, in a project like conserving a prairie, by its nature, it needs, like, human involvement and care and oversight. We also sat down with Michelle Bertelson, a land steward at the Lady Bird Wildflower Center. So I like grasses as a whole because um, they're just they're the hardest workers in the prairie systems, and I love them. Um, so my favorites are little bluestem because if I find little bluestem on a property, it means that the soil underneath it has a good chance of being good. So it might be that this didn't get hit quite so hard as other places. So it's one of the species I look for to tell me when I'm doing the assessments is to tell me, oh, check that out. There might be something cool there. There may not, but it's a good thing to look for. She told us more about the prairie's ecological function. Prairies have been called forests sort of upside down because all of their mass is under here. And so what these dense tangled roots give us is this very rich soil that it's also really good at infiltrating water. And so in a healthy prairie, there's not a lot of runoff. Most of it goes into the ground. Mm -hmm. And as it moves through that healthy soil, it gets cleaned, which is great for us. Um, And it's also, these are the soil, these are the plants that built the soils that are providing most of our, the breadbasket of of the country. Yeah. (laughs) They built that. So thank you, Uh Grasses. Okay. Um, So that's that. Um, It's also a very, it's a very, very diverse system. And so... The plants are kind of the base and the soil life, but then there's a, there are a lot of animals that depend on it. Um, the, most, the one we talk about most right now because they're sort of in crisis are the pollinators, um, which will go to flowers of all kinds of things, but the prairie are particularly a rich place for them. And the neat thing about prairies is you can build them big or small, and so you can kind of insert them into urban areas where putting an old growth forest may not. <laughs> One of the questions we asked ourselves was whether there were any ethical complications in preserving the Blackland Prairie. I think more recently I've come to like appreciate the way Texas has shaped me as I've like learned more about our native plants and animals. And so I think like understanding how latent being a Texan is in my own identity, I think it's become like a really noble cause for me to preserve something that is only native to Texas and only like is very unique to our identity. Like when you think cowboys riding across like the middle of Texas, like they're probably at the Blackland Prairie or like when you think about wild, uh, wildflowers and blue bonnets and things like that, it's like, guess what? That's native to the Blackland Prairie. Oh man, it's hard for me to separate the ecological from the personal just because I like it so much. But I'd just say that I think it's a really cool thing to have a prairie on campus, and it's something that I'd really take pride in being a university that has an endangered native ecosystem on campus. That's something that I can just really take part of and be really excited about. How do you um, interact with invasive species um, on the plot? I remember you guys talking about that last week. So when we got there, there was invasive nandina, which is, it's a traditionally used in landscaping. They're all over campus. I'm sure you can see it if you look out the window right now, is that there are these kind of, they're like half bushes, half trees, and they have these bright red berries. And basically, like, when one of these berries drops, it's like, you've got really good odds that another plant's going to pop up there. So it spreads like crazy. There's other other plants, they drop seeds, and they may or may not take, but nandinas are really good at taking. And so... We knew that those were already on the location, as well as Bermuda grass, which is another one that, like, once it gets in there, it's really hard to get out. So, in this instance, we it was 
to set the correct foundation for establishing our prairie with native plants it, it was best for us to get those out as much as possible and it took some pickaxing to get the nandina it's it's really amazing what that can do it colonized and there was like massive like six foot long root balls i'm sure we can kick around in there with a the pickaxe and still hit more nandina mm -hmm. matter that's down there but so in that instance, it was important for us to remove those invasive species because they we knew that they could outcompete our prairie, and so making sure that and being able to like nurture our grasses from this like really small size. Once you clear out a plot and you have this blank slate, everything starts trying to grow there. Is there you know the grasses pop up, any seeds floating around start to colonize, and so. Um, once we cleared it out, it was really important that we maintain that maintenance so that the stuff doesn't come back and outcompete our grasses. Yeah, I'm just going to add on to that. You know, we've got our, we're going to do work days to remove those invasives throughout the life of the prairie, and it's just something that we have to keep on top of. Cool. Um, have there any, been any, like, ethical implications when you started it? Like choosing one plant over the other and like what the consequences of that would be so like this is, i don't know this is a really interesting and i was, I was going to ask you about this because we can talk about this later it's a really interesting topic that like there are some school of people to say like all invasive species are bad all the time if you see an invasive species like kill it on site but then there's other times where it's like well this invasive species can like do a good job for the community like if this tree is providing shade and it's not like causing any harm in this particular instance it's better to have an invasive plant than no plant at all in most cases and so in this particular case we were able to justify removing those invasive species because we think like having this overgrown planter that no one appreciates for anything and isn't being used to educate students in any way we think like the improvement in utility and use for it on campus really was worth removing those invasive species in that case um Mark, where do, you, where do you fall on that debate? Hmm, I guess I lean more towards the sides of getting rid of all the invasives, because even if that individual plant isn't doing anything wrong, it can set seeds for plants that will do something wrong. Michelle also touched on the growth patterns of prairies and how they aren't always so easy to grow or maintain. It takes a long time to grow a prairie. <laughs> like, these had been in place for, you know, millennia. Um, it's not like a lawn, and so there's a complicated interaction between the soil life and the plants themselves, and so they don't just reappear. Um, yeah. You can speed things up a little bit by putting in plants that kind of start building that soil and putting organic matter back into the soil, but you can't fast forward to the end. You can just, you set things on a trajectory to where it can heal itself, but you're just doing the first part, and you're hoping that a building doesn't get planted on it before it can continue its own trajectory. The prairie can also be implemented in practical ways to serve its ecological functions. This is a lot of what we're trying to do is sort of get ecological function into urban areas because we've had in especially in this country but everywhere sort of there's conservation over here and then there's development over here and never the two shall meet but we want to bring them together and so this is just this is what they call an ecological roadside um, and so you use the plant material so this is a filter strip so it's plants selected because they are good at getting water into the ground and cleaning it right here. So those are dense right there. And then it goes into more of a swale. So the water comes off the water, off the, the road, goes through that filter strip, gets cleaned a little bit, and then it gets collected down here 
um, and clean some more. And we've also got habitat for other creatures right here. So you have just, you're gonna have an open side next to your road anyway. It might as well be working for you. Jack and Mark also brought up an interesting cultural perspective, mentioning how prairies are important for Texans in particular. I think more recently I've come to like appreciate the way Texas has shaped me as I've like learned more about our native plants and animals and so I think like understanding how latent being a Texan is in my own identity I think it's become like a really noble cause for me to preserve something that is only native to Texas and only like is very unique to our identity like when you think cowboys riding across like the middle of Texas like they're probably at the Blackland Prairie or like when you think about wildf- uh, wildflowers and blue bonnets and things like that it's like guess what that's native to the Blackland Prairie. We also spoke to anthropology professor Maria Wade to talk about the settler culture of the Blackland Prairies. In okay. terms of Native Americans it's a little different because the destruction of the, the prairie or, or the demise of the par- prairie, so to speak, um, had little to do with Native American issues. Uh, it really was much more associated with the, the farming and the, the presence of the Anglos in, uh, in Texas. And that really starts with the early to middle 1800s, not before. Wade had more to say after we met. In an email afterwards, she wrote, I think one thing I should add that is important is that regardless of whether it is the Blackland Prairie or any other ecological zone in Texas, what is relevant for Native Americans, all of them, is the loss of their homelands. Even if you don't have a cultural connection to the land, conservation efforts on campus benefit the university So we've talked a lot about benefits of green spaces on campus, and this is something that will contribute to that. Just because having green space around, it's been shown, they reduce stress, they improve quality of life, and other things that are just in general good for students. It's also an important step in implementing more sustainable landscaping practices and more native landscaping practices on campus, is that we're hopeful that the prairie can be a pilot project for use for, for having less maintenance and resource-intensive forms of landscaping on campus. We're optimistic that if the prairie is received well by students and it becomes an important part of like sustainability efforts on campus, that we that landscape services will have more latitude in how they choose to maintain their lawns and which plants they use, and hopefully they can use more native species like the grasses that are going to go. Uh, they're going to be growing in our prairie. Oh man, it's hard for me to separate the ecological from the personal just because I like it so much. But I'd just say that. I think it's a really cool thing to have a prairie on campus, and it's something that I'd really take pride in being a university that has an endangered native ecosystem on campus. That's something that I can just really take part of and be really excited about. All right, that's all we've got for you this week. The, this episode was produced by myself, by Morgan Keeler, by Sarah Schleed, and by Eric Keenow. And the reporters were Clark Dalton, Harmon Kang, and Divya Jagadish. We want to remind you to please follow us on Twitter, at Texan Audio, and uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're probably there. Uh, And just make sure you put us in your feed. Uh, One last plug for supportstudentvoices.org. That's where you can go to donate 
directly to either making more podcasts to making better videos to taking better photos to maximizing uh the the value and the the quality of our coverage uh in the print on the print side we can do a lot of that with help from you guys and so if you guys could donate that would be fantastic and hey look around maybe you'll find just a couple of odds and ends you can put together into a big story So we've got prairie wild rye, uh, Texas bluegrass, um, mealy blue sage, uh, gay feather, lemon bee balm, black eyed Susan, uh, Indian blanket, Indian blanket, Mexican hat, um, Ringo. Engelman's Daisy. I don't know. I can't. The idea is there ultimately there's going to be a lot of different kinds of plants here, and that's the way it should be.